Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6 in just a minute, um, just exactly where we left off uh, last, uh, last Sunday. Just the way that these lessons have fallen is kind of convenient. Um, I gave the last uh, monthly sermon on Elijah and Elisha very late into the month, uh, as late as possible. So this, this lesson is going to be exactly where we left off last, uh, last Sunday. And if, if you remember, the point of why we're looking at uh, Elijah and Elisha's lives is um, not just to look at the accounts themselves, but to relate things specifically to Romans chapter 12. So last year, um, we were looking at different applications through Romans 12 all year. And one of the points that I brought up at the beginning of this year was in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, you, you have more perspective given to those same applications throughout their lives. And so we'll see that at the end of the, the lesson this morning. Um, but just to, to understand how to get more out of our Bible reading, just to see how beautiful and extraordinary and deep and rich God's Word is, and to even study some things that maybe you haven't really ever heard lessons on before, and this section is probably going to be one of those sections. Um, this might be a section of text that you didn't even realize was even in the Bible, um, which, makes it, which makes it really exciting. But also with just this, this map that I have here in the timeline, it can be easy to forget that God has grounded his work in the world in real places around real nations and in time frames that were really in the past. Um, so again, we're, we're nearing about 100 years from the time of Solomon. Israel has just been continuously plummeting. Jehoram is one of the sons of Ahab. He's not the son of Ahaziah. He's the last king of Israel there that I have highlighted. He's not the last king of Israel, but just in the timeline where we are. Um, he's a son of Ahab. And if you remember, Ahab was the worst king up to his reign to have ever reigned over northern Israel. And with Jehoram, it seems like you get these lights of, of, of goodness, but never real repentance. And we'll see that again this morning. But I think it's important to remember Jehoram knows his history. He knows that he's an Israelite. He knows what God has done with Ahab. He knows about Elijah. He knows about Elisha. He has interacted very directly with Elisha multiple times. And even in the just previous account, specifically in chapter 6, 20 through 23, the enemy nation uh, that I have an arrow on in the northeast, the Syrian nation, they had just been brought helplessly to the middle of the city and they fed them with bread and water at Elisha's command. So there's just these extraordinary things that were happening, giving them reason after reason to turn back to God. And we'll see in verse 24 that uh, none of that was actually producing the desired result of repentance. And Judah was being influenced at this point and uh, corrupted um, by the descendants of Ahab as well because Jehoshaphat had foolishly given his son to ally with, uh, with Ahab and his descendants as well. Um, so Jehoram is uh, the same name in Judah, but a different king. But to get into the to text itself, um, this is going to be a larger section, so I want to just jump in and just start reading and thinking about the events as they, as they happened here. Um, so the title of the lesson is Satiating the Depraved. Satiating might not be like a word that, you know, is a very normal word, but it's, it's the idea of giving, giving in such abundance, it's just so far beyond what is necessary. Um, and you'll understand the idea of satiating the depraved specifically as, as we read. So verse 24. 
Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cob of dove's dung was uh, for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor, from the winepress? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will, we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard these words, heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. All right. So stop there. So just to reiterate the scene here. So the Syrians, who had been the, long, the long-term enemy of, of Israel, again, you notice that they were bordering the edge of the nation on the northeastern side. Um, Ben-Hadad may have just been kind of a, a title like Pharaoh for the king of the nation, but there's also a possibility this is the same Ben-Hadad who had been experiencing the conflict with Israel since the time of Elijah, and it could even be the same Ben-Hadad potentially, who Ahab actually spared when he, he had the opportunity uh, to kill him and spare God's people the tribulations that would come from the conflicts to follow. So Ben-Hadad with the army of Syria is besieging um, Samaria, which is the capital city. Really the goal of a siege like this, they would surround the city on all sides. They would cut off all of the outside supplies from getting into the city so that what would eventually happen is food and water supplies would deteriorate and diminish and eventually the people in the city would be starving to death. And the wish would be that in the process of that they would surrender. So the hope, I mean, if, if they die, they die. But eventually you would assume they would surrender before they all die. And obviously from reading, you can get the impression that Israel, the people in Samaria are incredibly stubborn. Um, you look at the kind of compromises they were making, right? So what was the condition in the city? In verse 25, we get kind of a, the first shocking insight into just how bad things are in the city. Um, has anybody in here eaten a donkey's head before? Like, I know sometimes people have eaten some pretty weird stuff. Is anybody? No? Okay. Um, I don't imagine there's much meat on a donkey's head. I don't imagine that, like, it's tasty at all. Um, and it's an unclean food, by the way. So, like, Israelite law, not that these people cared about the law at all, despite them being God's people. It was an unclean meat. Probably not much nutrition or value you'd get out of that, but modern currency, that would have been $600 that you would pay for a donkey's head. Um, it's $35 that you are paying for this dove's dung. And this was two cups of dove's dung. Two cups of dove's dung for $35. Um, to put that into perspective, so um, I think most of you know about Miss Wilkes. Uh, so Miss, Miss Wilkes is a restaurant in town where, like, it's, it's really famous. You get all the food you can eat. It's, it's all you can eat. And you sit at this big table with, like, ten people. And it's, like, the best southern cooked food that you can possibly get anywhere. It's totally amazing. There's like 20 different dishes on the table. They just keep bringing it out and you keep eating. And it's $25 per person to eat a meal like that. $25. So you imagine paying $10 more than what you get at Miss Wilkes. 
and you sit down and all you get are two cups of Dove's Dung, and you think, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is great, because I get to live another day, right? So the idea is, like, the people of Israel have made insane psychotic compromises to continue to live and resist just surrendering, surrendering to the Syrians. And you imagine, like, people are making a business out of this, so, you know, people are rummaging around the city. I don't know how they're collecting this much dove's dung where they're making a business out of this, but I imagine you've got to be pretty focused on actually, like, getting all of this so you can sell it. So, and this would be for the rich. You know, a place like Mrs. Wilkes, you know, if, if, if you have the means, it's not a go-there-every-day kind of place. It's a go-there-once-a-year kind of place, right? So this was what the rich people were eating. So what were the poor people eating? And I think that's where we get the next account. This woman cries out to the king, and in verse 28, it seems like he anticipates, I'm sorry, verse 27, he anticipates this is going to be a problem about food. So he says, like, you know, if God can't help you, how can I? Am I going to get, am I going to get wheat for you or, like, you know, wine for you? I mean, I can't, I can't do anything for you, right? So he anticipates it's about food, and ironically, there's a very sad and morbid sense where it is actually a complaint about food. So in verse 28 and 29, you see the problem, right? This other woman instigated this idea, you know, hey, let's eat your son. Let's boil him. And then once we do that and we eat him, then we'll do that to my son too. And then the woman who instigated that whole scene ended up hiding her son, uh, obviously, right? So what, what is the king supposed to do about that? You know, I, just imagine being the king through this whole account and just try to vividly see these things. You know, it's, it's very visceral in a sense to almost like become tangible. I mean, is he supposed to demand that the other woman bring out her son and they justify eating him? Should he punish the woman for withholding her son? Should he punish the woman for eating her son? I mean, what, what do you do? And it, it seems like in verse 28 and 29, the, the, the other problem is it doesn't seem like there's any remorse or guilt over what she's done. She's more upset that the other woman has not given her son, right? So, I mean, the people are just so lost in this psychotic, maddening condition. Interesting thing about this that I think is very important to note, in Leviticus 26, 29, you don't have to turn in your Bibles there, but in Leviticus 26, what God does is he outlines in the time of Moses the, the future history of God's entire timeline with Israel. He mentions blessings that he would give them in their obedience, but then he mentions progressive curses that would be put on them to bring them to repentance. And at the very end of the process of those curses, the very last straw is God said in Leviticus 26, verse 29, they will eat their children in the madness of the siege when their enemies come against them to destroy them. The reason why that's important to note is it's, it is at that point in Leviticus where God is done with the nation. There's no healing. There's no restoration. It's time for the nation to be laid completely waste and to be destroyed. There is no promise of healing. So the thing is, in verse 30, you get this scene where the king, like, he rips his clothes and he's got sackcloth underneath his body. You know, it kind of seems like he was trying to still look like a king, but kind of hiding the fact that he was, you know, trying to appeal to God to act and do something. But I think it's important to note, God owed them nothing here. 
They were not owed any deliverance, no help. What God owed them by rights, by covenants, was destruction. Here is where they should have been wiped off the face of the earth forever, right? And that makes what happens next even more amazing. But I think just real quickly before we continue reading, the important thing to note is that the king of Israel was put into an entirely helpless condition, and that's what he needed. Because ultimately, as we've noted time and time and time again, God through the prophets is ruling, proving his rule through the prophets, not the kings. And what he's trying to do is appeal to the king to repent for the sake of his nation. So the king is put into an entirely helpless condition, and let's see what he does with that at this point in verse 31. Um, 31 through 7, 9. We're going to start looking at verse 31 through 7, uh, verse 2. Then he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence, but before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how the son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. By the way, this is a terrible chapter break. Just totally ignore the chapter break here. Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. So first thing is the king's solution compared to God's solution, right? So the king's solution is, all right, things are so bad now, and I'm so tired of waiting around for something to change you know, just in the, in the fierce anger of the moment of hearing these women, the solution is, well, I need to go kill Elisha. And I want you to think, like, why would that even seem like that could be a solution? And I think the more that we meditate on that principle, the more the principle of the unreasonableness of our sin and compromising in tribulation becomes more clear. I think it was a struggle of power, right? And I think the, the king of Israel... If he was wearing sackcloth beneath his body because he was appealing to God to act, really, he's, in a sense, putting God in the same position he's being put in with these women, right? Like, there's no winning with what the women have done. Like, really, justices, like, they should be put to death for what they've done. I mean, that's an abomination that they've done this, right? So that's the only justice. And you think, for him to cry out to God, unless he realizes that he actually needs to die to resolve this conflict with God's relationship with the nation, he doesn't get it at all. And you can tell he doesn't get it by what he says in verse 31. Instead of taking responsibility on himself, he puts the blame on somebody else. That is one of the clearest signs, by the way, when somebody has not repented is when they're still blaming others for things that are going on in their life, problems they're experiencing, sins they're committing, you know, the reason why they can't do this or that is because of this person over here, these circumstances. It's like Saul. Do you remember how Saul, multiple times when God would bring Saul into account for some sin he had committed, he would put it off on the people and say, well, the people forced me to do it, right? Instead of just admitting his sin. David, in contrast, 
was a man who quickly put the responsibility on himself. So you have all of these just atrocious factors of the situation. And Elisha anticipates the, the messenger of the king coming to him. The door is held shut. And I think it is worth noting as well, Elisha could obviously be easily found. Like some, somehow the status of the nation has gotten to the point where Elisha actually has his own house in the capital city of Israel. And it seems like he's living there quite freely. And it's also worth noting that Elisha was in the same city where these things were happening while it was all happening, right? Um, do you think the king could have had a different conversation with Elijah? And I think maybe that's what the elders were doing. You know, Elisha wasn't hiding from them. He was right there. What we find over and over again is the way that the king approaches the prophets, he always approaches them as if they're an enemy to his circumstances. And over and over again, they choose to instead prove that God is working to bless them. So, Verses 1 and 2. By no right of the people, by no work of the people, by no cry of the people, Elisha, by God's grace, gives this promise that they're going to receive six times the amount of food compared to this dove's dung measure for one-fifth of the price of the dove's dung. So it's not like food's going to be free, but it's going to drop dramatically in price, and the quality of the food is obviously going to increase dramatically I want to think, like, why would the royal officer not believe this? So what we're going to read is, this gives the king himself enough encouragement to wait. So, like, Elisha's head is not cut off here. So it's like, as soon as Elisha says this, it's like, okay, you know, this is literally the only hope we have, so why not? You know, we'll, we'll bank on it. But why wouldn't the royal officer believe this? And I think, really, there's two things. One is it's too good to be true. Things were deteriorating so much the Syrians were surrounding the city. Women were eating their own children. Disgusting food was being sold at a price only the rich could afford. People were perishing in the city. How could the situation ever turn around the way that he's promising, right? It's too good to be true. I think the second thing, circumstances would have to change in a way that is unimaginable. The, the promise implies that the siege would end. You know, because how could, how could you get this much food just all of a sudden unless the Arameans left? That's, that's obviously not going to happen. Um, the people are obviously very greedy. And the only way that prices could drop that much is if the attitude of the people changed. And how could that happen in a day, right? Like the people are just, they're so greedy. They're selling disgusting things for an exponential price. So I don't think he's just saying this, this is too good to be true. I think he's saying... The circumstances surrounding us prove that that's impossible. So let's, let's see how God does this in verses 3 through 9. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live, and if they kill us, we will but die. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and fled for their life. 
When the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank, carried from there silver and gold and clothes, and went and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So, by no one's initiation, there are these leprous men who just so happen to be like at the gate of the city. I think it's the idea they're not in the city because lepers would have been outside of the camp, obviously, and unclean and contagious. But they're obviously like not you know, at the Arameans at their siege. So they're just kind of stuck in this position where they're not in Samaria, they're not with the Arameans. And in verse 4, they begin just kind of reasoning through all of this. So they begin thinking, if we stay here, we're obviously going to die. We go to Samaria, they're all going to die, so that's not going to help us. If we go to the Syrians, they might kill us, but actually they might spare us. So really their fear of death was gone, and they didn't have any reason any longer to stay where they were. So being freed from the fear of death liberated them to go to the Syrians and experience the reality of God's promise first. Um, so what happened? You look in verse, verse 6. They get to the camp and there's obviously nobody there. And God had just caused this make-believe sound to scare all the Syrians away. And they literally left even their animals. So like, I'm not sure, obviously, what this would have sounded like, but... I'm sure it sounded loud enough where it felt like they were on the brink of getting attacked and ambushed, right? So they just, they just run for their lives, and we'll see that later, that in the haste they like left even more loot on their way to get back to their uh, homeland. Um, so the lepers, they explore the camp, they eat food, they drink, they carry silver and gold, they get clothes, they hide them, and they have pity on the people that are in the city. And I think that's unbelievable how this has just switched around now. Now the rich people, the quote-unquote clean people in the city, they're now unclean. They're eating unclean foods. They're poor. They're impoverished. They're hopeless. Now these lepers are the ones with power. Now they're rich. Now they're satisfied. Now they're happy. Now they're joyous. Now they know that there's hope. They're the ones who have now what these clean and powerful people need who are in the safety of the city that they had, right? And you see that they realize that in verse 9, and they say that they have good news. If there's like a phrase in the Old Testament that should just like flash this big light of like how this might be connected to the New Testament, a phrase like that can pretty well do it, right? They've got good news. News of life, news of healing, news of restoration to a people who are poor, afflicted, impoverished, and on the brink of death. So let's read what they did with that. Verses 10 through 20, when they bring the good news to the depraved. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and donkeys tied and tents just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. One of his servants, just side note, servants 
always saved the day in Elisha's lifetime. One of his servants said, Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. They took therefore two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of the Arameans, saying, Go and see. They went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment, which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So stop there really quick. So the lepers tell the watchmen at the gate about what's happened. And you know what's interesting is the king, he actually believes it. So like, even though he wants to just stay secured in the city, if you look carefully at what he's saying, you can tell that he both believes it and doesn't believe it in verse 12. So notice he, he acknowledges like, okay, the lepers obviously have looted the camp, but what's happened is, yes, the Arameans have gone, but it's an ambush and they know we're hungry and they're going to attack us when we come out and they're going to capture the city. So it's interesting. He assumes the conflict hasn't really come to an end. Um, He assumes that his vulnerability is actually going to be the reason why the circumstance can't be as good as it sounds. Um, But I think it's important to note in verse 13, with all of that, the reasoning of the servants that the king accepted becomes the same as the reasoning of the lepers. And because of how they were all equally confronted with death by their circumstances, there was an impartial equality in their need to take hold of this promise, right? So verse 13, the idea is, look, if we stay here, we're going to die. And people have already been dying. So why not take just a couple horses And let's just go out and see. And it's kind of interesting in verse 14, this idea of go and see. In John chapter 1, that's the initial promise that leads people to Jesus. Um, Disciples say, teacher, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. Um, So to some disciples, you know, they talk, uh, talk to other disciples and they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They say, come and see. And the invitation is just, just come and see how real this is. Like if you understand your need for this, Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he fulfills the desires of those who seek him. So in verse 15, with these horses, they go beyond what the lepers had explored. And for 20 to 30 miles, just to go back to the map here really quick. So Samaria is like 20 to 30 miles from the Jordan River. So for 20 to 30 miles, there is treasure all the way. There's clothes, there's food, for miles. So you imagine there's, there's things for days to be had here. And again, this all happened without them doing anything at all. And God just granted it to him by seemingly unfathomable mercy. So one, one last thing before we finish this account. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the hungry, blessed are you, and men hate you and scorn you for the sake of the Son of Man. You know the brilliance of God's interactions with the king here is the king was put into a position where he was poor, where he was mourning, where he was hungry, where he was being scorned by the Arameans. And it's in that position that God blessed him. 
Let's read the last part of this, 16 through the end. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. It happened just as the man of God spoke to the king, had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. So three times it mentions that all of this happened according to the word of Elisha, just kind of like, I think, trying to anchor us in at just how extraordinary these, these circumstances were. But with, with the scene again, so with verse 16 and 17, have you guys ever read news reports on Black Friday when like at Walmart, you know, usually like people rush in when the gate is coming up and like somebody actually like dies because people are trampling them? And you read that and like you lose your hope in humanity. You know, you're like, what? Like, how can people do something so greedy and heartless where they're literally like stepping on people to get a discount on like a video game system or something, you know, or like towels for cheaper. Um, but the people here are so desperate to get out and loot the camp that they literally trample on the royal officer until he dies. So he saw that God's promise was true and had been fulfilled, but he didn't get to experience it at all. So he was trampled in the process of everybody getting part in this free promise that was offered to them by God. And I just think this, this ends in such an amazing way. I think one of the amazing things is in Luke chapter 6, um, a sermon where Jesus says these things are a foundation. It's like building on a rock and digging deep and building a house on it talks about how you should give and hope for nothing in return. It's interesting that in this account, God didn't say, I'm going to give you all of these things, but now make sure that when you get it, you thank me. Or make sure, you know, those calf idols that are plaguing the nation, let's make sure that first things first, once you, once you get this food, let's take care of those calf idols. Let's destroy those. None of it. And I think because what God saw in the hearts of the people the problem ultimately in the nation was not the calf idols themselves. They were a part of the problem. But the ultimate problem was ultimately the condition of the hearts of the people. And if God could change the condition of the hearts of the people, he could change the condition of the nation physically from there, right? And the problem was a knowledge of God in a hardened heart. Think about this as well with the end of all of this. What about the women who ate that child? That literally happened the day before this. The king could not administer justice. But can I suggest to you that God administered justice by grace? Can you imagine that woman being in the midst of the people eating food? Now everything's, everything's calmed down now. People now have their food. Things are getting back to normal. And here she is with the lingering horror of what she had done. Do you think she stayed the same person after that? I don't know what she did, but I imagine that the circumstances here probably particularly affected her, right? The idea is God can administer justice the way nobody else can, right? 
Um, one, one last thing. This was another opportunity for the nation to start over. Another opportunity for the nation to realize that God was begging them to let him pick up the pieces of their brokenness and just lead them and show them that he can heal their broken condition to encourage them to take responsibility. Can you imagine how this would have affected the king? That he had just wanted to behead Elisha the moment that Elisha was offering a promise of restoration, right? How humiliating that should have been to think that here I am the king and here's the condition of my city and here God is through the prophet desperately trying to salvage every opportunity to bless me. So with that, let's look at a couple applications. Just two applications for this lesson. These are going to sound generic, but I'd like to use the things we've read to be a little more specific with them. Romans chapter 12, one of the applications is to be patient in tribulation. I think one of the things is, well, but how? You know, so I see that God, God tells me to have joy in tribulation. You know, I'm commanded to be patient in tribulation. There's all these promises, but like, how do I, how do I get there? I think one of the things first about being patient in tribulation and how that's motivated by perspective, compromising God's will in suffering is a very heavy temptation. It can make it feel like I'm getting relief, right? So think about the Israelites in Samaria, that instead of surrendering, instead of examining their relationship with God, they're eating unclean foods. They're, they're literally eating like dung that they're collecting in large quantities instead of just thinking about the real problem at hand, right? And I think just like the king as well, that God uses suffering and tribulation to help us to look into our hearts so that we can have a greater sense of endurance through our trust in him. Just like two things to consider with this. The one, first thing to think about is Jesus when he was on the cross. Do you remember what the people were crying out to Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, what they wanted to see? They said, Jesus, save yourself, right? So if, if there was ever a time where we could see, okay, so compromising in tribulation helps, it relieves, that would have been it. But there was something in Jesus' faith where Jesus understood that compromising, even in the harshest circumstances, compromising anything of faith will not bring real relief. It only makes things worse. It only makes things worse. You know, the king may have felt like he was doing okay in his garments and whatever with sackcloth being hidden underneath. But the king and the situation that he was tolerating was directly contributing to the abominable practice of these women who had ate their child, right? Compromise in faith and tribulation is not real relief. Um, one scripture to turn to is Philippians chapter 2. I think there's just such a subtle compromise that I'm pressured to make, and I think we're all pressured to make, is complaining. Um, the world to find relief in suffering will gossip and complain, and there's this strange way where that it feels like it's relieving you from your circumstances, but it's just not real, Right? So Philippians 2, 14 through 16, I just want to point out a couple of things here. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God and above reproach in the midst 
of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So they were to remember hope here. So look at verse 16. The idea is they're not to complain because they're looking forward to the promise of the day of Christ and his judgment, right? And so Elisha, you get no impression that Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders around a table of donkey's head and dove dung, right? So they weren't contributing, at least Elisha obviously, was not contributing to the problem in the nation. He was holding fast the conviction of his hope. And was Elisha disappointed? Like, was Elisha let down for being in the city, being there to provide some source of hope for the people? Um, And verse 15, I think, is important. We have to acknowledge we're living in a heavily influential environment of crookedness and perversity. And so if we don't, like, anchor ourselves down and look to God's hope and rejoice and thank God for the hope he's provided and recognize the nearness of his deliverance and judgment, we will inevitably make compromise that begin to poison and anchor our hearts in the wrong way. So Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 5, um, just on this, on this same point, just beginning to look at tribulation differently, um, to see that in this account, God did not fail to provide when it was needed, even though it was obviously a deteriorating circumstance. The point I want to make with Romans 5, the very thing that's sieging you or you feel like is destroying you, that is the very tool God can and will use to heal and restore you, right? And I know that like many in this group, this is, we're obviously like a small congregation, but there is a lot of various suffering in this group, like a lot of people suffering in very, very different ways. And the scripture doesn't really limit suffering that God can use to just one kind of suffering. So I think it's important to know that in Romans 5, anyone going through any distress or difficulty can relate to the things being said here. So Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, uh, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Um, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Just the last part of that verse, I just want to briefly just touch on. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. It is uh, Jehoram in Second Kings 7, uh, or Second Kings 6 rather, he had gotten to the point where he saw God as his enemy. Elisha was his enemy. But in Romans 5, the idea is no matter how much we suffer, we should know because of the love of God as it's been revealed to us, our suffering never means that God has become our enemy. That God is always our source of relief. He is always planning ways to prove our character, give us more endurance, help us to have more hope, and that hope will never disappoint just as Elisha's presence in the nation did not disappoint. So I'm just going to reiterate the very thing that you feel is sieging you or destroying you is actually the very thing you can be thanking God for and praising him for as the very tool he can use to heal and to restore your heart. Last point, very simple, but evangelism is motivated by perspective, right? The lepers were outcasts, and that was good because they had the freedom to get this promise without any restriction. They could just go out to the camp of the Arameans and just enjoy the plunder of the camp. The work was already done. There wasn't a need for them to fight. They just, they just had to go out and get it and then just 
bring the report back and let everybody know what was going on. So experiencing God's grace was a sufficient qualification for them to preach the message. Mark chapter 5, there's a demon-possessed man. It's the worst account of possession in the Bible. He's possessed by seemingly thousands of demons, and after Jesus heals the man, the man wants to continue to follow Jesus, but Jesus says, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. If you have experienced the salvation of God's grace, you are qualified to teach others about it. And the king and the people in the nation, the royal officers, they seemed wealthy and prosperous, but I think in that account, God was exposing a window into their real condition. So even though people around us seem like they're prosperous, they might seem happy, they're actually satisfied with donkey's heads and dove's dung, as disgusting as that sounds. Do you think if we understood in a more visceral and tangible way what it is we've really received, like the lepers, that we've had nothing, we were dead, and yet God has given us the unfathomable riches of Christ, that if we saw that those around us are dead just as the people in the city of Samaria were dead, that we might be more motivated to tell that good news. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 says that he was appointed as an apostle. He was given grace to preach to the Gentiles again the unfathomable riches of Christ. People he acknowledged were separated from God, without God, without hope in the world, under the kingdom of uh, the domain of darkness and the dominion of Satan. And so the way that Paul saw things cultivated within him this passion to teach people about what was available. And we're being called out to that place. So the invitation is, God has reserved riches, specifically for those who are poor in spirit. That if you recognize that your life, although it might seem fulfilling on some surface, temporary level, ultimately because of God's revelation and just the confidence we can have in Christ, it's now made clear that all men everywhere need to repent of living lives that have been wasted on futile and vain things. And we are being called outside of the camp of this present life to receive the riches of eternal life that are just available because of Christ. And so if you're here and uh, are willing to accept that message, if you need prayers from the saints or anything at all, come forward and bring it forward while we stand and sing an invitation song.